Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Dr. Cameron Sapa. Uh, Cameron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Cameron, you are a clinical psychologist uh, with a specialization in behavioral medicine. You are a coach, uh, a founder yourself, having helped found uh, uh, the founding team of Umbada and Actualize, and uh, an investor uh, as well. So I'm curious, how have you uh, taken your sort of expertise uh, in psychology and applied it to uh, investing? How have your lens as a psychologist helped you evaluate entrepreneurs? Yeah, for sure. You know, I think it goes back to an old post that Mark Suster wrote um, at Upfront um, where he said essentially the job of a CEO and a VC is to be a chief psychologist. Because like, if you think about it, as a founder, you have to manage the psychology of a ton of employees. And as any founder knows, probably like a half or, or more of your job is just managing people and people problems. So you, I think you have to kind of be an amateur psychologist to be an effective CEO. And I learned that obviously is being a serial entrepreneur um, and uh, working with a lot of CEOs along the way. And it's the same thing as an investor. You know, if you think about what investing essentially comes down to, it's identifying great founders, right? So you're assessing people, which is essentially what a psychologist does. You are um, convincing or selling them to work with you, which is essentially social psychology or persuasion. And then you are coaching them. Um, once you're a board member and investor in order to enable them to be as successful and great as possible, which is essentially what therapy is. Right. So, um, you know, I read that years ago and I always thought, okay, well, you know, uh, maybe the skill sets that I, that I spent myself, uh, over educating myself on can be applied right in the real world in a very practical way. So I very much tried to do that, um, both as a founder executive, but now as a investor as well. Right. So, you know, um, being a very early stage investor and seed focused um, through my uh, angel fund, Magi Ventures, a, a lot of it is founder evaluation. And, you know, you hear obviously a lot of investors say that they're very founder first right. or team first. I think I obviously come at it with a little lens and that I'm, I'm pretty structured and um, thoughtful about how I evaluate and founders. So what's an example of an insight that you might have? Um, on, a, on a founder, whether it's a go or a no-go, relative mm-hmm. to an insight that another great seed investor, say Josh Koppelman, who was not a psychologist, yeah. uh, might miss perhaps, or, or just another great seed investor. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure any of my insights are like a truly unique, but I'll, I'll tell you one that's probably a little bit more contrarian in that, um, you know, I don't think actually psychopathology is as much of a deal breaker as some people think it is. So, and I'll tell you a story without naming the, the, the founder in a company. I was talking to a, a venture firm who was kind of kicking themselves for passing on a unicorn company. We'll, we'll put it that. And, um, they met the founder very early on, had an opportunity to invest very early. <laughs> we're not, we're not saying who it is, but, but you can use your imagination. Let's put it that way. And they actually, uh, accurately assessed their personality as saying like this person, is is probably somewhere on the dark triad and is going to be a problem to the company. So we don't want to invest. And the the problem was they were absolutely right about that founder. They ended up becoming a problem um, to that company. But quite frankly, it didn't matter from an investor's perspective because the company ended up being quite successful anyway, right? So I think it's a good example of the fact that 
you know, quite frankly, a lot of the founders that I see that are inordinately successful are somewhere on a spectrum, right? So psychopathology is not this black or white thing where you have a mental illness or you don't. All of us lie somewhere on the spectrum of whether it's depression or anxiety or Machiavellianism or narcissism or, or psychopathy even, right? It's, it's all a matter of degree. And quite frankly, people in my experience, especially having you know coached a lot of people who are in like the top 1%, to really truly be great, in my opinion, my thesis is you, you kind of have to be abnormal, Right. There's, you have to be a little bit gone, as Conor McGregor, who is a world champion MMA fighter, um, put it. Um, and so I, I think it's about finding people who, quite frankly, do have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. Yeah. Maybe they are a little bit, you know, uh, if you want to call it abnormal or a little bit like further along the spectrum, perhaps is a better way to put it than everyone else. But maybe not so much that they're actually going to either run the company into the ground or, quite frankly, do something that's illegal or unethical. Yeah. Right. So another interesting anecdotal uh, example is I had a supervisor when I was doing my training who actually did the um, psych evaluations for um, a famous reality TV show. And she told me that she'd actually do formal personality tests on the people who are applying for the show. And she was like, you know, basically my job is to find people who are pathological, but not so much so that they're going to kill themselves or kill someone else. Right. So they want to be like 80th percentile, but not like 95th because that's going to be problematic. And, you know, funnily, I actually think like finding great founders is, is not too far away from that. Right. You, you want people who are quite frankly, you know, compelled, driven, obsessed, yeah. a little compulsive, a little perfectionistic. Do you see founders sometimes are like, you're just way too well adjusted? <laughs> Well, if probably you've made this decision to be a founder, you're probably not <laughs> totally well adjusted. Um, maybe it's different if you're running a little small business, but if you're going to be a big venture backed, um, but people don't want to believe that, or, or, or there's a subset of people that don't want to believe that, or don't believe that view. And they're looking for sort of Ben Silverman architect. I don't know. Yeah, you're sort of nice guy, nice woman. Um, you know, CEO that's been very successful and said, "Hey, that person, you know, it, it, there isn't just the Travis archetype. There's, sure, there's the total opposite." There is, there's absolutely, I just, I just want to clarify and say there's absolutely well adjusted, yeah. reasonable, not very psychopathological founders out there who do phenomenal. You don't, you don't need to, you know, um, to be a freak, quite frankly, to, to be a successful founder. But I do think you have to have something exceptional about you, yeah. right? So maybe you are well adjusted, but you are incredibly, um, charismatic and you can do a phenomenal job of recruiting a team, right? right. Or maybe you are incredibly values driven. And you have your heart and soul in the mission of your company. And that attracts people because they want to go work for that mission and support that mission, right? So I do think you have to be exceptional in some way. And that could be uh, personality. It could be, you know, um, where you are on the spectrum. Or it could be other things that compel and drive and attract the right people. Is there a psychopathology that you think is underrated in terms of when people see it, they typically, like, dismiss it? Or they think it's overrated when people see it. They, you know, they're actually excited by it or don't mind it so so much. But mm, that's a good question. So people kind of misunderstand the difference between OCD and OCPD. So OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder. And so people misuse that term. OCD is really what you think about if someone's like washing their hands 30 times a day. They're engaging in repetitive ritualistic behavior to alleviate their anxiety. Now, people misuse it because they refer to perfectionists as OCD when really that's more OCPD or what's called obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So OCPD is basically pathological perfectionism. Now, when I was in grad school, our professors kind of 
jokingly said that they screened us for OCBD because quite frankly, that's what it takes to often be successful. Like you don't go through a doctoral program unless you are a little bit perfectionistic, organized, conscientious, disciplined, use three different color highlighters to, you know, read your research papers. And so I actually think it's a, um, incredibly valuable trait. So if you think about sort of conscientiousness slash OCPD, you know, super detail oriented founders who know their numbers when they pitch, who, um, you know, can, can, uh, you know, do a decent job forecasting the future and just know the ins and outs of their businesses are to me is a very positive sign. And so, um, obviously like being too far on the spectrum, as yeah. we said, can be problematic because you have to move fast. Right. And one of the problems of course, with perfectionism is you can, it can make you indecisive and slow you down yep. through, um, paralysis by analysis, as they right. say. But, you know, I, I, I much prefer someone who is overly conscientious and perfectionistic than someone who is not yeah. right. Which personality tests do you think are legit and helpful and illustrative and then you use perhaps, or which do you think are bullshit? Definitely not the Myers-Briggs. So the MBTI, yeah, it's, it's not an evidence-based test, nor is it reliable or valid. And if you want to read why one of my classmates, um, uh, from college, Adam Grant wrote uh, a great article. You can Google it's called, um, MBTI, the fad that won't die. And for some weird reason, which is really just tells you a lot about corporate culture. Corporate America is obsessed with the Myers-Briggs yeah. and everyone uses it. Like very large corporations use it, even there's no science behind it, which, which blows my mind. Um, because there are evidence-based personality tests. So the one that's most commonly used is called the Big Five Personality Test. The acronym for it is OCEAN. So it's Openness to Experience, Conscientiousness, Extroversion, Agreeableness, and Neuroticism. You can take it for free. Um, if you Google the, um, uh, I think it's like the Neo, like the Open Neo, something like that. Um, you can find a free version. You can take it. And it'll tell you essentially um, what percentile you are on these five personality traits because that's a lot more useful than telling someone that you're introverted versus extroverted. It's not useful information because someone who is 98th percentile on extroversion is going to look and act very differently than someone who's 51st percentile, even though they're both E's quote unquote, right? So I like that. There's another version of it called the Hexaco, which has the big five and it adds a sixth trait called honesty, humility, that's essentially the inverse of the dark triad that I mentioned. So it, it's a good one because it kind of flags a little bit more of the pathological um, folks if they, they come up high on that. But that one you can also take um, a specific test for. There's something called the dark triad short form that will tell you on those three traits, uh, narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopatho- uh, psychopathology, um, psychopathy, I should say what percentile you are right. on that. Machiavellian meaning you just do whatever it takes to win. Like everything's all about power basically. Um, yeah, I think it's a part of it. I think it's a lot of it about sort of manipulating for long-term gain, right? It's like the ends justify the means is the classical sort of definition of it. So you think about like a, a Frank Underwood sort of character. Right. If you're ever interested, I wrote a whole article um, on it. There's a series of articles that I wrote called Your Company Culture is Who You Hire, Fire, and Promote, which is my whole um, thesis around how do you build great company cultures. Right. And, and so what do you do with – do you fire a narcissist? <laughs> what, what do you do with these types of people? Yeah. So the, the general thesis behind the article is, you know, I'm a behaviorist, right. In terms of the way that I, uh, I orient as a psychologist and the, the basic philosophy is that, look, people respond to rewards and punishments. Um, and the reason that a lot of company cultures go downhill is because if you're a top performer, 
but you're pathological in terms of the way that you treat other people, you get away with it, right? Because they're like, well, we don't want to give up our top performer, particularly if you're in a hard to hire position like engineering or data science or design. Um, so people, have, quite frankly, they let them get away with murder because exactly the myth of the 10 X engineer, but that's actually part of my thesis around it is I actually don't think there is such a thing as a 10 X engineer. If you think about it in terms of the net organizational impact, because even if you were as an individual 10 X, the net productivity loss of you annoying and burning out everyone around you is going to be like negative 15. So it's going to be a net loss of the company long-term, especially if that person is in a little bit more of a management role or has to work collaboratively with other people. Maybe they can get away if they're like a lone sales wolf on their own on a beat, like hitting their quota and they don't have to interact with a lot of people. I think sometimes they can be managed very, very carefully. But if they're having to work collaboratively or manage a lot of people, it's very hard to have someone... Um, not have a net negative impact on your company. So the general thesis in the article was that what one of the things that we did at Omada was um, I designed the performance evaluation system to be 50% based on their performance, but 50% based on their values behaviors so that you actually can't be a high performer by definition if you are not uh, you know, a team player and, and playing by the values of the company. And I think that's the only way, in fact, you can get people to cooperate because if someone's like, I'm hitting my quota and I'm going to get promoted and it doesn't matter how I act, of course they're going to act accordingly, right? Because you set up the incentive system in a way that they know what's important and what's not. So you can talk all you want about the values, but if you're not uh, hiring, firing, and promoting people yeah. according to it, then it doesn't really matter. So th- that's the first part of the article. And the second part of the article is um, all about the dark triad and sort of how, like explaining what it is and how do you manage it essentially in an organizational context. Where would like Alan Iverson or Carmelo Anthony, <laughs> Stephon Marbury, I don't be on the, would they be anywhere in the dark triad? I don't know. I've, I've seen interviews with them. So I don't, they don't come off strongly like that, at least. Um, I probably, I've seen AI more than anyone, but, but certainly in terms of being driven, right? Like putting, putting your heart on the line. Uh, how much they hustled every every time when they played games is very admirable, right? Yeah. So, well, if you have people in dark track, are they changeable, or do you just let them go? Or, or personality traits are difficult to change. I would say, generally speaking, it's it's not to be too pessimistic about it, but it takes a lot of work for people. So, I would say, generally, on average, by default, no, people don't change very much. However, I do think you can temper people's behavior a lot. So one of the interesting things, in fact, that that article was saying, like, like psychopathy is, is, is generally genetic. It's actually truly rare if you're a psychopath. It's like less than 1% of the population. Although ironically, it's overrepresented among CEOs. It's probably 5x that because they find their way into positions of power, right? Um, and, um, you know, narcissism often comes from early childhood experiences, according to the psychoanalytic theory. So th- those folks are a little bit more made, right, from whether it's from from birth or from early childhood experiences. Yeah. But my kind of thesis is Machiavellianism is actually the most dangerous of the dark triad because anyone can become Machiavellian. And we know this, unfortunately, from history when you, you, you know, you yeah. study the world wars and other things. People can do very cruel things. Um, because I kind of think we, we all have the seeds of, of good and evil within us. And if you create a, an organizational context in which that is highly pushed or rewarded, um, then, you know, people can obviously end up doing sort of dark things. So I think that's something that that's why it's even more important to be very mindful of the culture that we are reinforcing, right? Because I think even good people can end up doing bad things if you, if you put the wrong incentives in place. Yeah. And do you, I mean, it's interesting just to 
you know, people are always trying to create better tests, like create better mm-hmm. SAT tests. People are, you know, wondering whether IQ, you know, tests measure things that should be illustrative or right. do anything, do with um, IQ tests. Yeah. I mean, look, the literature still thinks, uh, still shows that, um, you know, it's still one of the most predictive things in terms of academic and career performance. You know, there's obviously a debate about that, that and Talib, you know, on Twitter is very negative on it, but, um, it's, I think it's still directionally useful. Yeah. I think his argument, as I understand correctly, is that it predicts um, on the low end correctly. If you don't have, if you have a low IQ, that's that's correlated. But it, on the high end, it doesn't necessarily predict or some or some nuance. Where, where. Yeah, I mean, and I think it depends on the field, right? If, yeah. if you, like, what are you talking about? If you're tr- trying to predict who's going to become a top mathematician, it probably matters a lot more. Right. Who's going to make a top entrepreneur? Probably not, right? right? I think there's way more than IQ. Um, you know, just like, for instance, just grit and hustle. Yeah. And, and I don't and think that's, that? I mean, could you imagine yourself giving founders, you know, personality tests mm-hmm. and it being predictive and some people have always been trying to make sort of mad sure. mark for people or mad mark for founders. Yeah. Um, and you know, can you get this data that is predictive on who's likely to be Yeah. I've, I've had actually discussions about this. I, I don't think probably giving a personality test is, is going to be feasible. You know, I think there's obviously sort of, um, issues with like reporting honestly and other other things because it's in a it's in a it's very different in a clinical context like when people come to me in like private practice they're obviously very open and and, yeah. and honest obviously when you're pitching you have a clear financial incentive to quite frankly lie now there's ways of actually flagging and catching that there's literally live scales actually in personality tests that can flag if people are faking good or bad interestingly um, but I just think that dynamic is probably not set up. I think what investors, of course, end up doing is they're using their intuition as the personality test. So absolutely, they're evaluating grit and hustle and resilience and things. But you know, they're they're looking whether that's historically at their track record for for demonstrations of that. They're looking even during the diligence process of like, you know, how quickly are they responding? Are they on top of their you know their stuff when I'm interacting with them? Are they responsive and coachable so i think all of it's essentially uh personality test and quite frankly some people are are better at it quite in terms of evaluating people than other than others the real question is does that actually predict you know performance and roi long term and i I can tell you just at least anecdotally i don't have data on it but i i do know some investors that do seem to be more intuitive more attuned to evaluating personalities and quite frankly they've done quite well and what makes them better is just more data or is it they've um, like what makes one have that skill over another? Um, is it sort of topological, either have it or you don't? Or no, I'm, well, I mean, I think I think some people m- m- may be more attuned to um, and good at evaluating people. I do think it can be developed, but I don't think it's um, quickly developed. Right. Like you know, in order for me to get licensed, I just literally spent three thousand hours face to face with people, and I've spent many thousand more after that. Right, so I would say I'm probably pretty good at evaluating people, but it literally comes from almost like Gladwell's like 10,000 hours of, of intense practice. Right. And also seeing people in the whole spectrum of high functioning to very low functioning. Like I've literally worked with people who are homeless to, you know, like multimillionaire CEOs um, and everything in between. And so you get, you get a pretty good spectrum of the human condition and i think so I, I do think it can be learned but it's but it takes time yeah so bill earlier mike morris or whoever named your great investors mm-hmm. you and said hey in an hour teach me whatever you can teach me <laughs> or maybe a bit longer whatever but like what's something that i don't have that, that you have what's something else that you would share with them about I, I mean i think it depends on what your investment thesis i'm not sure like for instance um you know bill or mike are sort of um 
or how much they are sort of, uh, let's per- say it was day zeros, pre-seed or seed investing, right. which really people driven. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, um, looking, trying to, um, implement some consistency in it. So I think intuition is powerful. I, I kind of call it unconscious pattern recognition. So if you think about it, like to make a machine learning analogy, right? Like you, your brain is essentially a, a model that's been trained over time from all of your interactions with people. And if you had, as I mentioned, like a good enough data set of thousands of people with a wide enough spectrum that it's a valid data set and it's been useful in predicting outcomes, then you can trust your intuition. Some people's intuition is very biased and they should, quite frankly shouldn't listen to it, right? There's like an old, like, I think there's some old YC post about how they ended up being biased of people who end up looking like Mark Zuckerberg, right? It's like not, not a great like model to, to yeah. use sort of going forward. But I, I do think there's some um, benefit to quantifying or structuring. So I actually did a project, for instance, on like, how do you better evaluate founders and, and quantify them? So it was um, kind of back testing, in fact, a model based on a, a venture firm's historical portfolio and looking at what traits, um, you know, uh, the partners essentially look for and looking at that, if that actually predicted ROI. Now, there's a little bit of hindsight bias um, in kind of doing that kind of analysis, but I do think it's useful, for instance, to whatever traits that you think are important as an investor to be rigorous about evaluating and not just totally listening to your gut, but saying, okay, for instance, if these are the four things that I think are important, let me actually evaluate this founder who's pitching me on these, you know, four traits. Let me put a number to those four things um, and start to collect that data over time. Right. And then I can, I can go back and look at that and be like, okay, now six, you know, one, two years out, uh, I, I might be sitting on the board with this person. I've really gotten to know him. And did my initial predictions of that person actually pan out? And if not, then what might have been my cognitive biases that informed that? Or maybe I just didn't have enough information um, at the time. Or or maybe I was right. And then maybe that's a useful thing to kind of look at. Yeah. So I think that's the thing. Um, venture, obviously, as you know, it's like the iteration loops are very long. Yeah. Um, and so if you're looking for ROI, it's, it's too slow of a variable. But I certainly think you can actually look at founder assessment and look, you know, pretty short periods of time, like six, 12 months out, especially if you work intimately, you make the investment, you can kind of see if whether your initial impressions were kind of yeah. correct or not, and use that to hopefully iterate and um, improve the way that you you think about founders. Yeah. For me, because I have on the average community, people who are looking to start or join their next thing, I get to see people over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people can be very convincing or, or very good salespeople, but when you see them over three months or six months and think, hey, what have you shipped? What have you built? Right. You know, over periods, you know, Mark Sister's lines, not dots. Um, right. It, uh, that's something that I try to have because, you know, first impressions can, can, can tell you a lot, but they can also be very deceiving. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone's perfect at it. And that's the, that's the toughness of the game that we're in, right? It's, it's, it would be ideal to have three to six months to work with people. And I know some funds, in fact, who try to do that, right? They'll set up a project for them and be like, let's evaluate how quickly they execute against that within that time frame. And that's, that's probably even a better, it's almost like a behavioral task that you're giving them. But sometimes you don't have time, especially in this market. You got like a week to make a decision. They got a couple term sheets. And so you got to, um, you know, obviously do your diligence, but you, but it's, you have to make a gut call too. Yeah. So I think the more that, you know, people can refine their intuition and also put some rigor to it right. so they can, you know, you're, you're going to make mistakes, but hopefully you can, you can make less of them over time. If, if no answer, we'll skip no problem. But as a psychologist, do you have, well, zooming out for a sec. So sometimes you only have a week. So the thing you have to do is not just use your own judgment, but also reference. Absolutely. As a psychologist, do you have sort of 
any insights as it relates to reference checks that you think are underrated or you think people should be doing more of? I am a huge fan of reference checking. Yeah. Because, you know, obviously founders are putting themselves in the best light and I did too. You know what I mean? Um, what makes a great reference check or what's a great way to get, you know, predictive information from well, first of all, do them. I'm actually surprised how how little both um, founders and investors reference check and employees. And employees. Yeah. Um, yeah, you should be doing your diligence both ways. Absolutely. Not just also relying, obviously, on the ones that people give you. I would say like half the time those are worthless anyway because they obviously are cherry picking folks. Um, so I'm a big fan of back channeling reference uh, checking obviously you have to do that in a mindful way if someone's currently employed somewhere like you know i always think of everything's a long-term relationship you don't want to burn any bridges or, or cause any harm to anyone right do no harm is always a first first pass motto um sometimes i'll do up to six reference checks on an individual person so i'm really trying to get a breadth of different perspectives ideally, ideally someone who managed them ideally someone who's a peer ideally someone who worked for them because obviously people can act very differently depending on the hierarchy and the, the type of dynamic of the relationship that they had. And second, I think there's actually an art to reference checking. A lot of people blow through the reference checks very quickly, but I actually think you get a lot of good information if you build rapport with a reference checker, really emphasizing the confidentiality, building the rapport, building a little bit of a trusted relationship. And you can do that, by the way, in 30 to 60 minutes if you're good with people, right? And And people will tell you a lot of information about a person that you know, even as a psychologist, as you should, it's very different. If someone's worked with someone for five years in and out in the trenches, they're, they're going to know more than you will and that you can perceive in a 15 minute, highly stifled sort of, uh, you know, interaction, right? So there's a lot that I think you can do to kind of build that trust so that people are, are more open and, and also pay attention, for instance, to what they're not telling you, right? Because sometimes, uh, you know, it's a small world and people are going to be guarded even if you, if you provide confidentiality, but if someone's not providing a super positive reference or not, you know, answering the NPS score of like, would, they, would you hire this person again? Or, or would you have them be your co-founder if you started their next company together? And they're not like pounding the table. Absolutely. Yes. Um, it might tell you something, right? But you obviously have to take that in context. And it's the same thing with the negative evaluations, right? Sometimes people might provide a really terrible reference check and you, you want to see like, um, can you give me concrete examples of why this person is a terrible human being, right? And, and, and try to get, to see how much of it come, that is coming from personal bias or negative experiences versus a little bit more objectivity. And that's, that's part of the art of just kind of seeing deciphering and filtering what information is actually useful and what's not. Right. But, um, but I think quite frankly, just putting in the effort to, to do a lot of them, to do them with sort of thoughtfulness and depth and cultivating the relationships to get good information, yeah. you get an incredibly a treasure trove of information. Right. And yeah, for sure, I've certainly avoided lots of bad hires by or, or investments by doing references. At the same time, there have been times where I've got either false negatives, or false positives. I can't remember which one, but I, I got bad reference. But it turned out to be a big company, and, right. and sometimes they were right about the person, or sometimes they were actually you know wrong about the person, and it was just their own bias. And, right. And I listened too much to it. It's hard to know which is which. But exactly, and I, I think that's part of why, like for instance, doing many oh, reference yeah. checks is helpful because then you know if you if like two come back negative four come back positive then you know you can balance that but when you're only doing two yeah. and you get one that's negative it's going to highly influence you because you're like well 50 percent of people are unhappy and you're like that's obviously not a, a significant sample yeah. obviously six isn't either but at least it'll you get a little bit more robustness okay. from that let's talk about your personal um your personal coaching practice sure so yeah you, um, what are the things in which you help uh entrepreneurs and, and investors with 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm an executive psychologist. I actually try not to use the word coaching anymore because unfortunately it's kind of an abused word. It's kind of meaningless. Anyone can like literally a felon off the street can call themselves a coach and, you know, do whatever questionable things. Um, I, I'm a psychologist. I'm licensed. You can, you can literally look me up and see if I have any complaints, which I don't. Um, I'm background checked, you know, like th these are, these are important things I think for trust, right? Especially if you're coming in and talking not only about your mental health history, but you know, it's a, it's a very delicate and sensitive thing to, to kind of work with people in a medical and psychiatric context. So people, people want to have, you know, trust and confidence that, that not only are you credible, credentialed, legitimate and trustworthy, but that you also know what you're doing, right? So it spent 10 years literally uh, studying studying psychology and practicing psychology in my education residency and fellowship. So that's that's a unique thing that I kind of bring to the bear is is like, you look, I'm a psychologist, I'm a professor, and, and I have that wealth of sort of training and experience that I bring to bear. But the other part of it is I also spend a huge amount of time starting and right. operating companies. And so it's kind of rare to have someone who has the academic and, totally. uh, you know, clinical credentials, but also has real empathy for what it's like to be a founder and be in the trenches and, uh, you know, start companies. Um, and, and so with people are, you know, nutrition, uh, sleep, ex exercise, mm -hmm. intimacy, talk more about focus. Sure. So, yeah. So, so this is the funny catch 22 is, is I, I call myself an executive psychologist, but I don't kind of brand myself as the person that you come to when you have problems. As you know, and, and there's a huge conversation in Silicon Valley right now about mental health in yeah. startups, right? And I think part of it, unfortunately, is like stigma, right? Still founders to this day, um, and, and human beings, I should say, not even, it's not a founder thing, have a huge stigma around seeking mental health because the idea is you, something has to be terribly wrong for you to see a doctor, right? And obviously that's not, that's not true at all. Like literally going back to the sixties, psychology has been all about human potential and positive psychology and increasing well-being and and flourishing so you don't have to even have any dsm diagnosable issue to work with a uh, psychologist quite frankly you can use it for personal growth you can use it to enhance the quality of your relationships you can use it to be a better person right um, and some people do that so what i've purposely done in terms of branding my practice is i call myself a health and performance psychologist I'm like, sure, if you have some issues with depression, anxiety, we can deal with that. Absolutely. I have another specialty in anxiety disorders, right? So, and spent a lot of time working in the VA system, working with people with PTSD and, and various folks like that. But the stuff that I, that I kind of position myself is, is the health stuff that you mentioned, right? Which is, um, what are the health behaviors that help you function at your optimal level? And a lot of that has to do with diet, exercise, sleep focus and intimacy. Those are what I call the sort of five foundational health behaviors. Because my thesis there is when I'm putting my clinical hat on, not the investor hat, but the clinician hat, is my job is when I'm working with people as a psychologist, not to tell them how to run their company, right? right? I'm like, you are the expert in your company. I'm going to help you run your mind and body in a, in a super efficient and, and optimized way. Because if you are eating right, sleeping well, focusing appropriately, having quality relationships, um, and doing all those things, you're going to be more productive. You're going to do a better job, of course, running your company. And of course, it's, and then people know that intrinsically, but of course, founders put themselves last, right? In terms of they're always like putting other people first, yeah. taking care of their companies. Self-care is just not 
yeah. a priority. And it's not because they don't know better. These are obviously very smart people. Right. It just gets kind of put on the back burner. So literally, I think like half of my job, and I'm not even kidding, is just holding founders accountable because we, we meet usually bi-weekly um, in terms of live um, Zoom sessions, but we, we also text in between. And like sometimes a lot of the texting I do, I'm like literally just checking in on people every day and being like, all right, we set this behavioral goal. And we're like, for instance, we're like focusing on getting optimizing their sleep back to normal because it got trashed from, you know, going through fundraising and now they need to get back and rest. Then, yeah, we'll, we'll literally check in if that's what we got to do every day. And they benefit from that because, you know, human beings they're yeah. holding each other accountable and having social support and pressure um, is a good thing. Let's go through each of the five uh, elements. And Perfect. Talk about one sort of, uh, or maybe multiple sort of uh, insight or, or thing that's people don't appreciate or, or people that misunderstand. Yeah. So uh, when you pick one, then let's go through. Sort of, uh, sure. Well, we, we start with sleep. I think sleep is the foundation of all the foundational health yeah. behaviors. You know, everyone knows that you need to sleep more. I think people actually underappreciate how much you need to sleep. So, you know, my at least best uh, reading of the literature is people probably need to sleep seven to nine hours. If you're sleeping seven, it's probably, it's hard to believe that it's actually optimal, right? right? And if, if you're engaging particularly in a lot of physical activity or you're, you're working a lot, right? If you're one of those founders who's like working around the clock, you should probably be getting closer to the other end of the spectrum, which is probably closer to eight to nine hours. And then there's very few founders that I run into actually that are consistently doing that unless they're kind of like the health nut kind of folks. Um, so I think that's actually a key part of it. And so I have some interesting points of view. I literally went on Twitter today and it was just like, uh, you know, responding to some, someone who wrote a, in my opinion, a terribly misinformed <laughs> article about, they're like, you should sleep less and meditate more. And I was like, oh, this is terrible advice. Cause the, the person who's writing in and asking them, like, they're, they're not even getting eight hours of sleep. They're like, I'm sleep deprived, basically, is what they're saying. And I don't have time to meditate. Should I sleep 30 minutes less? And, met, and they were like, yes, absolutely. And I was just like, you got to be kidding me. There's zero evidence that you should sleep less. And I'm a big fan of meditation. I literally teach a mindfulness-based therapy at UCSF. So, so you know, raw, raw meditation. I'm a fan of it. But you shouldn't be cutting out sleep, right? Yeah. So you should do it. So I think that's the main thing. It's actually like, in, in my opinion, if you are waking up with an alarm clock, you are by definition sleep deprived. So I know it's a, that's like a very like, you know, contrarian thing to say, but I, but I actually think it's true. Right. But if by definition, if you're waking up at an alarm clock, your body wants to sleep more and you're interrupting it. So the, obviously the solution is you got to sleep earlier. And, and then obviously in this society where we work all the time around the clock with digital devices and, and light bulbs all the time, we don't get to sleep um, on time. So a lot of the work I do is actually like working on bedtime hygiene with folks to get them to go to sleep early enough so that their difficulties getting up, snoozing, getting up on time, going to meetings, um, is resolved sort of preventatively or prophylactically. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, diet. For sure. What do people misunderstand about that or not, or not appreciate? And what they got to push to you is that some people think that we don't really know that much about nutrition. Yeah. You know, funnily, um, Dariush Mozafarian, who's the Dean of Nutrition at Tufts, was an advisor um, that I brought on board at Omada. And he says, I think there's some anecdote he said about like, we only need, we only know about 40% of what we need to know about nutrition. Um, probably directionally true. I, obviously, um, the medical community has changed its mind tremendously yeah. over the last few decades, which t- to me is quite frankly embarrassing, right? Like yeah. the fact that we pushed like low fat diets and now we were like, oh, okay, maybe fat is not as bad, right? But I was like, how much, how many people have we harmed sort of along the way? Right. 
So, you know, I, I think with a great deal of humility, um, the clinical and scientific community needs to be a little bit mindful that maybe we don't have all the answers quite yet. But I do think there's there's growing consensus about things. So, like, obviously, um, I think most people will agree that eating whole foods is probably a good thing, right, in terms of, like, not at least highly ultra-processed foods. There can be some processed foods that are obviously healthy. Yogurt technically is a processed food. Ground beef is a processed food. Neither of those things are, are terribly processed. They're just kind of like, you know, modified in some way, more, more for convenience or even adding some benefits like probiotics. Um, so we have to be careful with the heuristics that we use, right? And I think that's actually the biggest challenge that I see in working with clients. People want to reduce cognitive load. So they want a heuristic. They want a shortcut. They want to know, oh, carbs are bad. A processed food is bad. X is bad. This is good. But the reality is like things are more nuanced, right? Yeah. All carbs are not bad or all carbs are not equal. All calories are not equal. Um, all processed foods are not equal. But it, that requires thinking and people don't necessarily want to do that. They just want to be like, tell me what to eat and tell me what not to eat. Right. Which you can do if, if that's where people are at. I always think you have to meet people with where they're at. And you're like, sure, if you want me to give me a couple of really simple rules because you don't have the time and space to deal with it, we can do that. But if you kind of want to go down the rabbit hole and really want to optimize, then yeah, we got, we have to have introduce a little nuance and grayness to it. So I think that's a big part of it. I'm obviously a fan of, I had a keto company, so I'm clearly biased. So I'm going to disclose that. Um, but I am a fan of, um, lower carb diets. I would say, I don't think everyone necessarily needs to be on, on keto, right. but I certainly think there's a growing consensus of scientists like myself who believe that if you are at least on the diabetes spectrum, right? You are so you are almost by definition carbohydrate intolerant. Then it obviously makes sense, um, given that you have poor insulin sensitivity, to cut down on the carbs, at least the refined ones. How, how much nutrition is generalizable versus specific case by case? Yeah, I have a contrarian take. I don't. I, I actually don't believe this whole individualized, super personalized. Let's do your DNA and gut microbiome thing. I think there's probably a diet that actually works for, let's say. 80 plus percent of the population that's directionally correct. And it's not a crazy idea. In fact, I mean, if you look at how we feed, we probably, we actually know more about feeding dogs and cats than we do about humans. There's more consensus around it, but I think it's because unfortunately nutrition is like a religion. As I always say, you're never going to change anyone's mind about it because people are super dogmatic about it. Yeah. But we like, you know, like with cats and dogs, I mean, they're like highly carnivorous yeah. animals. It's very clear what they need to eat, but we have no, uh, opinion because of the biases that we have when it comes to uh, with people, unfortunately. So, um, why do we have these biases? Like, why are vegetarians so like, <clears throat> you know, carnivores, <laughs> you know, sort of Bitcoin steak lovers? Right. Um, I I think it's an it's like a cult of identity, right. right? Where I think people lose all their objectivity because it becomes a part of who you are, yeah. which can be good and bad. So I think, like for instance, if if nutrition's like. If you, if, sorry, let's, let's not use nutrition. If say being a healthy person is part of your identity, people always ask me like, uh, how, how are you able to, you know, be so fastidious about, you know, your, your health regimen? And I'm like, it's part of my identity. Right. Like for me as a, as a psychologist, I'm like, I'm really big on practicing what I preach. If I'm talking to someone about nutrition and I'm fat and out of shape and like, I, I just don't feel good. It's not to say that you can't be a effective, like obese doctor. There are some, but I think yeah. you're just going to have better congruence yeah. and better presentation. And quite frankly, people will listen to you more. Do you deadlift with the same to love? 
<laughs> I don't I don't know how much he deadlifts, but I definitely deadlift. I mean, I work out five days a week, right? Um, and I play basketball on Saturdays, as we were talking about. So I, I try to be a good role model. I'm not a perfect person. I always say that. But I, but I at least do my best. Um, and I, so I think that's a big part of it. So, you know, I think the main thing, though, in going back to the nutrition conversation is a colleague of mine, um, Sherry Pagoda, published an editorial in JAMA. It was called A Call to the End to the Diet Debates. And I think that I really believe in this, um, which is if you look at the literature, the number one predictor of outcomes is compliance, right? The best diet is the one that you can stick to long term, right? So my main thing is like, look, find something that works for you. And by works for you, mean like you're able to maintain a healthy weight, you're able to maintain a healthy metabolism in terms of your markers, and you're able to function well, right? You're doing what you need to do in terms of your physical activity in life. Whatever that is for you, maybe it's keto, maybe it's paleo, maybe it's whole 30, whatever it is that it is. But if, if you can, if you're willing to do it and you're willing to sustain it long term, that's the best diet for you. Now, if you, if you're willing to do anything and you're a highly motivated person, then there maybe are more directional diets that are beneficial. Like I personally do think that lower carbohydrate diets, given the amount of obesity and, you know, diabetes that are prevalent is, is probably directionally correct. Same thing, I have a contrarian view that I actually think animal-based diets are more directionally correct than plant-based diets. People are, un, are unfortunately, just like as we scared people away from fat and, and you know, the, the medical community has kind of apologetically, you know, changed its course on that. I think we'll see the same thing about red meat, for instance. There's zero randomized clinical trials that show that red meat is carcinogenic, right? But we've scared the hell out of everyone and thinking that, for instance, red meat is terrible when in fact... It, it was probably at least eating ruminant animals like woolly mammoths, bisons, uh, or sort of ancestors of cows were probably what our ancestors ate for many millennia, right? So funnily, um, you know, we've scared, scared the hell out of people because we've confused things, right? We, we've looked, taken nutritional epidemiology. We looked at like processed hot dogs and said, oh, those people end up having more cancer. So all red meat is bad. You're like, no, that's a, a, a Franken hot dog is not the same thing as a, as a quality grass fed cattle that I buy in Texas from a rancher who I know the name of and trust in terms of what he's producing. It's a very different product. Right. So, but that's, again, that's the nuance that I'm talking about where people are just like, Oh, tell me if red meat is bad or not. Yeah. Right. But you know, life is not that simple. Right. Intimacy. Yeah. So it's funnily, I, I, um, I also tweeted about this the other day and just talking about like sex is such a taboo subject. Right. And it's, it's funny too, as like a professional, like talk about it sort of publicly, but you know, as a psychologist, like we know that like, and everyone knows that, um, intimacy is important. And that obviously means like, you know, intimate intimacy, um, in terms of sexual health with a partner can be personal intimacy, right? Like in terms of masturbation. And these things are, again, you know, unfortunate that we, we can't talk about publicly, but we, we know there's clear evidence that for instance, for like prostate health, psychological health, you know, all the stuff that we're talking about loneliness as being epidemic in America, um, that these things are critical. So I think like, for instance, just having a outlet for people to talk about, so, um, you know, that's a key thing. So I, that comes up in my practice, right. In the sense that like, it's often not the reason that people come in the door. Yeah. Um, but inevitably in terms of if we're talking about their health and happiness, their, uh, either lack of intimate relationships because they're so busy running their company or the fact that they're neglecting their intimate relationships because they're so busy running their company um, is, a, is a key topic, right? And thinking about how to sort of re, not only reprioritize, but reinvigorate that because it, it's so, um, it's so important to who we are as like psychosocial, spiritual, 
beings. Yeah. You know what I mean? And is there open communication? Like, what, what do you typically have them do to to reinvigorate or, or create? Um, it it varies a lot on the individual and like what their what their specific um you know sort of problem is. I think sometimes there's like, for instance, if there's like a lot of anxiety around right. um you know finding a partner um that can you know if if that's sort of the key blocker a barrier then you know there's a lot of sort of exposure work that we can sort of do around that right so that's that's kind of one of the interesting ironies by the way of working with founders they can be incredibly confident when it comes to their professional lives amazingly charismatic great salespeople when it comes to pitching but when it comes to like speaking with the opposite gender if they're heterosexual they can be a lot less confident right and so that's interesting how sometimes strength is domain specific um but but knowing that identifying that and then um treating that if you even want to call it treatment um can be incredibly helpful for for people and you mentioned psycho-spiritual beings i'm I'm curious to understand more about your views on human nature and another lens which will ask that is is about emotions, feelings, instincts. I think we had a thread on, on Twitter about this. You know, there's sort of a camp that says, hey, you should always listen. You know, your emotions have sort of the um, most true uh, understanding of, of what you are, what you care about. You should listen to them about whether you should stay in a job, whether you should stay in a relationship, or do X, Y, or Z. And then Nobala tweeted the other day of, uh, you know, take all emotions out of decisions and watch how better it, or more effective and mm-hmm. better if you, it, will, it will be for you. Where are you sort of on in terms of how much should we listen to our emotions and what context, when, when not to, when do they mislead it? Like, how, how do you think about that as a psychologist? Yeah. Um, I don't think there's an easy answer for it. Um, but I think when you're applying it to certain situations, maybe there's some useful guidelines. So I wrote a, um, article about like, I think it was called like a, an executive psychologist view or like six tips on making better decisions. And part of it was, for instance, like, what do you listen to? when you're trying to make decisions about people, right? And so with people, I actually do think listening to your intuition, and I guess if you could say the feelings that come along with that is useful because, um, you know, I think when you're making business decisions, you probably should be pretty analytical and rational about it. But, um, you know, people, our gut instinct is essentially like probably an evolutionary phenomenon that's evolved over time because, um, you know, one analogy I've read, which, which kind of resonated with me is like, if you're deciding, let's say back in the day, um, if someone's a competent hunter, you can just go hunt with them for a day and see if they're skilled, right. And assess their, uh, their competence. But you got to decide probably within the first few minutes of, can I trust this person? Are they going to just like knock me over the head when we go on the hunt? And so our, our intuition is probably pretty finely tuned and at least figuring out, um, if someone's trustworthy or not. So I would say that's part of it. It's useful to listen to, but I also actually think it's very useful to listen to your friends and colleagues and loved ones because people's intuition often does get blinded, right? If they're, if for instance, and I talked about this in the article, if someone's a very, very insecure person, oftentimes, unfortunately, they end up attracting romantic partners um, that are not ideal, right? Who are, who don't serve their needs, but it's, it's often coming from a core inadequacy that they don't feel like they can do better. So they end up attracting people who are not healthy for them. And they, they, they may not be fully insightful or aware of that, but their friends around them are like, that guy's like a terrible human being. Like, why would you go for him? Right. So if you notice that you have that continual pattern, I think it's, it's useful to balance the intuition with quite frankly, feedback from trusted people that are around you. Yeah. Now, I would say when it comes to, um, not people, but like places, situations, events, you know, I think people engage in a lot of unnecessary FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. And there, I think, like, listening to your emotion in terms of, like, 
that there's an old like Derek Sievers post about like hell yeah or no yeah. is probably actually I kind of like that as a as a guideline or rule of thumb where we always think the event's going to be uh, or the thing or uh, is going to be better than it actually is. And oftentimes it's not, right? You can almost like use that as a behavioral experiment and be like, uh, am I going to regret going to this event? You go to the event and you're like, okay, was it that great? 80% of the time, probably not. So I think in that case, you should be excited about that kind of thing. So I think I like, that's a rule of thumb. It's, it's, it's not perfect, but, um, you know, so in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, we talk about how feelings don't come out of nowhere. They come out of our thoughts, right? So let's take the extreme example. If someone is delusional, right, they have a thought that, for instance, they're being persecuted, they're going to have a feeling of anxiety. And clearly in that situation, you shouldn't listen to your feelings because it's literally coming out of a a delusional thought that has no basis in reality. So obviously in that example, it shows that like, you know, that that emotion is going to guide you in the wrong direction because you're literally worrying about something that's fictitious and made up. Now, obviously, if you're having a very... Um, realistic perception of something, which is like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, you know, I'm having the thought that I might get fired because there's all these clear signs and signals that that's the yeah. case. And then that's causing me to be worried. Uh, maybe you should listen to that, right? So part of it has to come from a realistic analysis of like how accurate, right, are the thoughts that are driving these feelings, yeah. right? And if they are, then yeah, sometimes we should sort of listen to them. Or same thing when it comes to people. Um, you know, if, if it's a very strong feeling, right? Like I, I do think our intuition is not perfect when it comes to people, yeah. but if we get like creeped out or you just get like that kind of the hair on the back of your neck stands up, that kind of feeling is very rarely wrong in my opinion. Right. Um, so strong sort of, uh, bad especially bad vibes, negative feelings. Um, so I think we have to kind of be nuanced and you don't always listen to your feelings, especially like I said, if it's coming out of a distorted thinking, negative thinking, unrealistic thinking. But if it's coming that's from a signal that seems particularly strong, you know, your thoughts seem to be kind of realistic about it. It's an accurate portrayal of the situation. Um, then I do think it's useful. Right. Is it it accurate to think about emotions as sort of feedback loops that were sort of wired into us for prehistoric society that would help us lead to you know, higher chances of survival or, or, and or reproduction um, and that there's you know, prehistoric society in a bunch of different ways a bunch of ways was different from, from today and so there's some that's sort of outdated like road rage or the craving of sugar but then sure. there's a lot that does relate to survival and reproduction today that said that that sometimes overlaps with but doesn't entirely overlap with what's going to make me happier for sure is that a helpful lens to look at it or is that too reductive or incorrect no I mean look it's, it's very easy to, to um, speculate using evolutionary um, psychology theory but I, again I think it's it can be directionally useful if you don't sort of take it as truth but for instance yeah I mean we, there's pretty good evidence even to this day it's not even going that far back that we're, we're highly tribal um, as a people. And so we're very attuned to social rejection, right? Yeah. One of the biggest uh, drivers of anxiety is, is any sort of rejection, whether it's from, um, you know, romantic relationship or from a job, because then it triggers feelings of sort of inadequacy of I'm not worthy or good enough. Right. And that it lists one of the strongest emotional responses that you'll ever see. Because back in the day that, that, you know, rejection might be 
being kicked out of the tribe and then that means you're literally not going to eat and you're going to starve right. right now these days we can just move to another city if you get right. fired you can find another job you can find another partner you can find so a different friend group is learning there that you like would be helpful for me but i don't know if it's helpful for other is to sort of identify a story about why that feeling might be super strong oh fear of being shamed or fear of being outcasted or, or fear of, you know of je- jealous and say oh this is why it is but now that i can sort of see that this is sort of built into me, I can sort of watch it pass and not not take it that seriously. Yeah, I, I think that's very aligned with ACT. So ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, it's the type of therapy that I both practice, but I also teach. So I, I'm a clinical professor of psychiatry at UCSF, and I train the psychiatry residents in ACT. And it's a very useful, uh, both, I would call it actually a philosophy and a therapy. You don't, you don't necessarily even need to use it in the context of therapy. I think it's a useful operating system if you will for navigating life and part of it is actually you know holding emotions thoughts and feelings sort of lightly right and that's that's part of where mindfulness comes in is when you're noticing um strong negative emotions thoughts or emotions um it's it's not necessarily that you need to ignore them but it's having the flexibility to engage with them whether or not it's useful, like we talked about, right? Now, you, you may have a thought or a feeling, and you're like, okay, I'm going to act on that because it's useful um, in this moment. But the danger to me is sort of the automaticity that we act, right? Most of the time, most of us operate on autopilot, where we have a negative thought or feeling, and our automatic reaction to that is to avoid, right? We don't like feeling bad, and so we're like, I'm going to avoid that, that uh, the people, places, and situations that make me feel bad, right? Um, but that may end up, resulting in me staying at home and not going and talking to that cute girl that I want to talk to, not going and, and pitching for that opportunity that, that may change my life and, and, and may end up restricting or narrowing the, our options and choices in life. So if that's the case, then I do think we have to sort of mindfully watch those thoughts and feelings and then think to ourselves, okay, now that I'm able to practice that mindfulness, I'm going to be able to more flexibly choose in this moment what I want to do. That could be going at home and being like, okay, maybe this is not the right time. Or it could be thinking, what's my value, right? Which to me is a much more useful way of orienting than an emotion, which is like, what are the things that are really important to me in my life? And if it is having a meaningful relationship, yeah, I'm going to go and talk to that girl. If it's to, you know, have a meaningful impact on the world through my work, then absolutely I'm going to take a risk of making that pitch and being rejected and being embarrassed by doing it because it makes the suffering in life worthwhile. Hmm. So how does ACT differ from uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or other form, popular forms of, of you know, some of behavioral? Yeah, I mean, they share some. Um, it's a great question. They share some similarities and differences. The main similarity is that they're both behavioral treatments. right? So a lot of the focus, it's unfortunately, a lot of people who've never been in therapy, they think it's just sitting there and like, talking about your problems and or sitting lying on a couch or some other weird, you know, hundred year old stereotypes. But, um, no, it's, it's super, um, uh, behavioral problem focus, active, like a general structure. If someone comes into me, you know, I, I assess their well being that week. I have an agenda of things that I want to talk about. They have an agenda of things that we walk, uh, talk about, you know, we knock through those agenda items. And then I, at the end, recommend behavioral exercises for them to execute upon. So in a lot of ways, it's actually very uh, similar to an effectively run management meeting, right? There should be an action plan and items and someone who's responsible for them and, and all those sort of best practices. So they, they share that similarity in that they're very behavioral. Um, the, the main difference uh, in terms of um, CBT and ACT is that 
they deal with thoughts and feelings in a very different way. So in CBT, for instance, it may be very legitimate for a, a patient to come to me and say, hey, doc, my anxiety is an eight out of 10. I want you to eliminate it to like zero or two out of 10. And symptom reduction would be a valid goal of treatment. And we do the behavioral work of, for instance, exposing themselves to the situations and that they fear in order to over time sort of habituate or um, extinguish their fear response this is the ACT. in CBT. Um, through repeated exposure. That might be an effective means of doing so, and that would be a goal of treatment. You'd be like, okay, you started out as an 8 out of 10. Now you're a 4 out of 10. We got a 50% reduction in your anxiety. Now you're better, quote-unquote. Um, in ACT, we take a very different point of view, and we'd say, um, in, in fact, the, the, the patient's desire to reduce their anxiety is the problem, right? Yeah. Because... You know, first thing that I would do is actually get them to question, is anxiety the problem, right? I think oftentimes anxiety is actually not the problem. It's the avoidance that comes along with anxiety. Is it the fact that you feel fear when you see the pretty girl that's the problem? Or is it the fact that you're not talking to her, right? Because if if you felt fear, but you were able to go up and speak effectively, even if you're terrified on the inside, is it actually a problem? By definition, it's not. In fact, in the DSM, you cannot have a disorder unless it's causing significant social or occupational dysfunction or distress, meaning that if it doesn't bother you and it's not preventing you from having relationships or being an effective professional, you do not have a disorder, no matter how much anxiety that you have. You can be in 10 out of 10 in anxiety, but if you're going and working productively, having good relationships, that's not bothering you. Now, it's, I know it's hard to imagine not being bothered by a 10 out of 10 in anxiety, but theoretically, right, it's not a, it's not a disorder, right? So it's um, getting people to realize that it's not the emotion that's a problem, it's the avoidance of the emotion that's the problem. And so, in fact, you, you kind of make people a little bit creative, what we call creatively hopeless about their agenda to get rid of their anxiety. And so when they do that, they become a little bit open to trying something different, right? And in, in ACT, it gets people to orient a little bit more towards their values, is what I was saying, right? So if that's the goal, and, and I get people to sort of get very clear and in, in experiential contact, meaning they feel it deep down inside in their gut, and they, they, they tell me, the reason that I want to do this is because I really do want to have a meaningful relationship, an intimate relationship with another person, and, and want to contribute to their lives, then it's going to make the pain of approaching this person the anxiety of approaching this person worthwhile. I don't need to get rid of it. I don't need to get that to be a, uh, from an eight down to a four. Now, behaviorally, you may end up doing the very same kind of work in the sense that they're going to have to practice going up and talking to people. So behaviorally, the exposure part of it's going to look the same, but the motivation for doing it is very different. It's not to reduce the symptom. It's not to reduce the anxiety, but it's to actually have them um, be willing to have it. So in fact, my, my kind of, uh, one of the analogies that I make is, um, the goal is not to go from an eight, eight to a four down to anxiety, but it's to increase their willingness from a four to an eight, right? Because if theoretically their anxiety is an eight out of 10 and their willingness is an eight out of 10, then there's no problem, right? Because their willingness matches their anxiety. So I, I always say sort of the gap between their, um, their anxiety and their willingness is where the suffering comes in. Right. So if your anxiety is an eight out of 10 and your willingness to have it is a two out of 10, your suffering is essentially a six, right? By, by subtraction, because that's what you have something that you're not willing to have. Right. So in a lot of the work that we do is enact is, is getting clients to essentially be willing to have 
what they're going to have anyway. It's not to like anxiety. Nobody likes anxiety. I don't like anxiety. I would prefer not to have it if I could. But the reality is there's no way to avoid it because anxiety comes from caring, right? I always tell my clients, I was like, if you want to feel a zero out of 10 in anxiety, there's only one way I know how. Besides obviously like medicating the hell or, or getting super drunk, which is obviously not a great strategy long term. The only way that I know how is to not care about that thing. If you don't want to have social anxiety, the only way to not have social anxiety is to not care about people. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, are you willing to give up caring about people to get rid of your anxiety? Of course, most people will say no. And you're like, okay, well, it, then it's kind of uh, two sides of the same coin, right? If you care about people, you will experience anxiety. If you care about people, you will grieve when you lose them right? There's no way to avoid the suffering that's endemic that comes from caring, right? So if caring and suffering is a part of the package that comes along with caring, then we have to be willing to have it, um, to have the pain that comes along with it. And when we can do that, we'll have pain. We'll have clean pain as I kind of call it, right? Which is the inevitable pain that comes from rejection or loss, but we won't have suffering because now you're not bothered so much by the fact that you have the anxiety that's, that's part of the journey. Yeah. And so talk, talk a bit about trauma or this, mm-hmm. this uh, or maybe connected or separately, this need to sort of process emotion. What, what's, what's going on there? Yeah. So, you know, this is like a, we can have a super long conversation about this, but um, I did a lot of work working in the VA um, with uh, veterans coming back from Iraq, Afghanistan, and even back, back in the day in the Korean and Vietnam wars. And, it, you know, it's kind of fascinating to see, you know, the unfortunate trauma that people live through, through going through war. Um, you know, sometimes that was fresh. Sometimes it was decades and decades old um, and see the impact that it has on people's lives. I remember stories of folks who um, interestingly had had trauma from back in the Vietnam War in the 1960s and dealt with it for over the course of 40, 50 years. Um, but they had essentially, as we talked about, avoided a lot of it by, for instance, becoming workaholics. And they would numb themselves, whether it's through work or through alcohol, um, as a way of dealing with it. But it didn't, you know, with, with mixed success, obviously, as you can imagine. The interesting thing is when they would turn 65 and retire and get into the VA system, they would become very symptomatic because their coping mechanism, um, they gave up, right? If they were workaholics and they retired, now they're just sitting at home all the time with their anxiety that they can no longer avoid because they're not, you know, distracting themselves all the time. And they're like, oh man, I really got to do something about it. And so amazingly, 40, 50 years later, they get treatment for the first time, you know, which is kind of mind blowing. And, um, it's both empowering and, and, and tragic at the same time, because, um, sometimes as like, fortunately in some of the better case scenarios, you get people better in like 16 weeks of doing a lot of like, you know, very evidence-based exposure-based therapy where people would recount their traumas in a very safe space and help them sort of process that. And we know from the research literature that that helps neurologically help process that trauma, integrate it and be able to move on from it. But, you know, they had from modeling it up over decades, they had never sort of fully, you know, dealt with that. And there's some interesting less evidence-based theories about how we may even in the body somatically um, sort of contained trauma that's that's sort of not expressed um, but you know I, I think it's it's all kind of part and parcel for it you know in the west we kind of consider the mind and the body separate you know in a lot of other traditions that's not the case 
Um, and so I think it's useful to think about that as one integrated whole, like mind and body aren't separate, right? When we experience anxiety, you feel it, the butterflies in your stomach, as we like to say, because yeah, I mean, we have like serotonin receptors in our gut. We, we're just learning all of this stuff that, that people, that we've probably known, um, socioculturally for, for a long time. But this is the biggest problem with philosophy, right? The mind body problem. Yeah. And understand consciousness. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, without getting like too deep, too deep into in, into the philosophy of it, but I but I certainly think that you know it's useful to not consider mental and physical health separately, right? right? So that's like one of the things that like people are like, "You're a psychologist, but you work on nutrition." And I'm like, "Yeah, absolutely. One of the best things you can do for your mental health is to eat a quality diet, right?" And that's there's an emerging literature. So so in fact, it, I would be neglectful not to check on right. you know someone's nutrition or their sleep or their relationships, um, or their physical activity. Um, because there's clear literature, for instance, on uh, physical activity benefiting depression yeah. and anxiety, right? I think more progressive clinicians are becoming more holistic. Just as a, I, I encourage primary care physicians yeah. to be more asking their patients about their mood and their feelings and their relationships and all that. Now, there's obviously like realms of expertise. I try not to like overstep you know, my, my realms of competence, and I certainly refer out when I you know, deal with stuff that, that I don't do. Um, and same like, thing. Like what, for well, for, like uh, I don't do uh, pharmacology, right? So even though I'm a professor of psychiatry and I train psychiatrists to do that, if it's certainly the medication realm, I have colleagues who I collaborate with. And same thing, like oh, if some of them don't do psychotherapy and they refer to me. And so, you know, we work in a very collaborative uh, care model. And I think that's the right way to do it. Yeah. So just to close the loop on uh, ACT, mm-hmm. CT, when do you recommend one for, for the other? How do those... I think the research literature shows that they're equally effective. So it's hard, it's hard for me to empirically say that one is superior to the other. I, I kind of use elements of both in my practice. Um, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I think the, the main thing that the literature, in fact, shows that effective is the behavioral component of treatment, especially if you're in any sort of condition that is problematic due to avoidance. It's getting people to stop avoiding and start approaching the things. Right. CBT and ACT sort of take different ways of getting people to approach yeah. it. But I'm like, look, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Whatever gets people to do the behavioral work, it's going to be the, the stuff that works. Right. Um, so I think the most important thing is um, is to actually just find a really high-quality clinician, right? You should yeah. go to someone who has a doctoral degree from a university that you've heard of that went through an APA-approved internship process um, and is well-trained, essentially, um, and especially if you're like a founder, ideally it's someone who's worked extensively with executives or has been an executive. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, that's the most important thing is to work with a really high quality person, um, that, that knows what they're doing. Cause I think that makes the biggest difference. And where does meditation fall into this term of the health benefits? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's, it, there's a big movement obviously going on right now on meditation. So in act, interestingly, meditation or mindfulness is just one of the six components, um, of the treatment. So I always emphasize that because I think um, it's so hyped right now that people treat it like a panacea. Like I went to like some uh, mental health event that was put on by someone. And, you know, it's funny, like just having dinner table conversation with folks. And they're like, oh, have you tried meditation when someone is talking about like a severe, you know, anxiety disorder that they have? And you're like, that might be helpful, but it's not a panacea, right? right? Believe me, if I could just refer folks to like a meditation app and that would cure them, I would be happily out of business. Um, but it, but it's not, it's not, it's not a quick fix for, for most people. It's a technique that can be incredibly helpful. 
in the cornucopia of the many tools in the toolkit. So I'm a big fan of it. I literally teach it and I practice it. But I also know it's not um, it's not a, a cure-all solution by any stretch of the imagination. I think it can be very helpful for p- changing people's relationships with thoughts, feelings, memories, and sensations. Yeah. In that it helps people through the practice of mindfulness, get a little bit of distance from them. And as I mentioned, change their thought action repertoire in that they can, in the moment, more freely and with greater freedom, choose what they want to do in that moment rather than just automatically be this ping pong ball of automatic responses that is typically how most people operate. So that I think can be incredibly helpful. But I think you need the rest of the tools too because let's say you 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 are a adept meditator and you notice that, for instance... Um, instead of, uh, I hate my life, you, you, you say, I'm having the thought that I hate my life. The moment that you've done that, you've practiced mindfulness because you recognize that your thought is not reality. It's just a thought. And then even the moment, the, the quality with which I say that I'm having the thought that my life is miserable, terrible, whatever, it, it kind of diffuses it a little bit. It doesn't have the same resonance because you're like, oh, it's just a thought, right? Or my mind is saying that. My life is miserable. Again, it's not truth, right? And it, it changes the emotional resonance and tone that happens and, and how you feel that. Yeah. Now, what comes after that is, okay, like, well, what do, I, what do I do with my life? And that's where, like, knowing what your values are, taking committed action towards your values, having structure and process and, and direction and all that um, is going to make a big difference. Cool. So let's revisit some of the uh, – we did diet, we did sleep, mm-hmm. we did intimacy, and just focus. Focus, physical activity. So let's talk about focus. Um, so yeah, you know, a lot of people kind of put stress as the fourth health behavior. And I always say stress is not a behavior. It's like you can't necessarily control your stress. Uh, I wish there was an on and off switch, um, as in most founders probably would as well. But I do think what we can choose is what we place our focus on. So meditation is one part of that. So that's actually why I don't include mindfulness as one of the core health behaviors. I'm like, that's a way of essentially training your focus, right? It's just like going to the gym is like the formal act of physical activity. There's lots of ways you can do physical activity just from walking around. And I always say the same thing, by the way, about uh, meditation. Meditation is just the formal practice of mindfulness. You can do anything mindfully, right? Like I, as I'm sitting here with you, you have 100% of my attention right now. And I'm being as mindful as I can be, right, in the context of this. So I'm not meditating, quote unquote, right now, but I am absolutely being mindful in this present moment, right? So I think the biggest challenge is, we're, you know, we're, we live in this attention economy, um, as someone wrote, and uh, literally a lot of the apps that we create are designed to steal our attention, right? So the, going back to what I said earlier about um, the recommendation to swap meditation for sleep that I found appalling um, is the same thing. I think there was some like, I don't know if it was an official deck from Netflix or something, but they were saying that the biggest competitor is sleep, right? I was like, wow, we're, we're in a tragic world if literally our apps are competing with sleep to, to vie for your eyeballs and attention, um, and so how do we, how do we, um, you know, change our relationship with that? And I think the biggest thing that I find is there's some lessons to be, I think, learned from the addiction world, um, from psychology where there's certain addictions that you can certainly go cold turkey from because like nobody has a need to smoke, for instance. It's not a fundamental, uh, human necessity, but like eating, disordered eating is a lot trickier because you absolutely obviously need to eat. So, you can't have people go cold turkey if they're like a binge eater or a stress eater because they have to feed and sustain themselves somehow, but they can't avoid food, right? And I think it's the same exact problem that we're seeing with these digital apps that are trying to steal our attention is 
look, most of us, especially if you're a white collar worker, you cannot avoid being on the internet. You cannot avoid the computer. Um, so how do you avoid sort of temptation um, when it's ubiquitous? And in fact, like with you and me, like we probably professionally to some degree need to use social media, yeah. right? Where it's hard for me to be like, I'm staying and re- removing myself from all platforms. Certainly it's probably some investors that do, but you know, obviously there's net, there's yeah. some net benefit from it. So how do we do it mindfully? So I wrote a whole article on um, dopamine fasting yeah. as sort of one, um, I'm not saying it's the way, but it's one way to approach it where how, it's not an abstinence only model, but it's more of like a harm reduction model, which yeah. is like, look, we have to probably use these things, whether personally for personal benefit or for professional reasons, but how do we at least put some containers or boundaries around some of these things that can be particularly addictive? Um, because we're overstimulated, right? So that's why it's called dopamine fasting because dopamine is the neurotransmitter that's responsible for uh, reward and reinforcement, right? And it sort of hijacked that natural mechanism that we have to uh, engage in things that are pleasurable, but it never shuts off because we have infinite scroll and we have retweeting and all these things that that um, are incredibly stimulating, right? And grab our attention constantly without ever letting go. So... He was kind of making an analogy to like almost like intermittent fasting, which is super fatty, kind of a Silicon Valley trend. But, um, you know, if you think about it in a simpler way, you know, I actually prefer the term, for instance, time restricted eating rather than intermittent fasting. I don't think you need to necessarily need to fast for like super long periods of time or days or, you know, a week like some people are doing, which is a little extreme unless you're doing it for very particular reasons or protocols. And it's the same thing. I don't think we need to, um, you know, go on long digital detoxes. It may be hard to do in a, in today's sort of economy, but I think what we can do is kind of do this in microwaves. So one of the things that I talked about in the article was just setting up sort of almost like concentric circles of almost withdrawal periods from things that are addictive. Now that could obviously include uh, pleasure eating. It could be things that are addictive like masturbation and pornography if it's done in a compulsive way. Uh, obviously internet and gaming um, things like gambling or compulsive shopping, or it could even just be thrill or novelty seeking, right? So these are like six categories of things that I talked about that tend to be uh, sort of behaviorally addictive. So the idea is if you identify the things that are addictive to you, or if you don't want to use the term addictive, probably an easier term is just problematic, right? There's a little bit of a debate about whether something's in and is, is the internet addictive or not? And I'm like, let's not even get into that debate. Is it problematic in the sense that you're using it too much and you're not exercising, sleeping and other things? And eh, then if it's a problem and you want to improve it, then let's work on it, right? So the idea is to set aside some time at the end of the day to essentially be on a dopamine fast where you don't engage in anything that's addictive and overly pleasurable, right? Now that could be, my recommendation is generally one to four hours a day. Probably closer to four would be ideal. Like you work your eight hours and the last four hours of the day or, or so you, you know, do other things that are meaningful, engage in meaningful relationships, read, write, you know, do, do other things that are values driven. You know, I, I put an hour because for a lot of the founders, they may not have that time, but the idea is find some, some freedom, some gap, some room in your schedule that you're like, I'm not going to engage in this so that my mind can almost like literally withdraw. Uh, from the overstimulation and, and, and be a little bit of, uh, have a little bit of freedom to restore itself, right? It's almost like sleep in a, in a way. And then obviously, you know, the ideal is, uh, once a week find, um, it could be like a half day to a day where you engage in dopamine fast. So a lot of founders, for instance, take Saturdays off or at least a half day off, 
um, where again, you're not engaging in these addictive sort of uh, patterns of behavior once a quarter, take an entire weekend off, right? Go somewhere, travel, maybe locally, um, you know, detox a little bit from, from all the digital stuff. And then the same thing once a year, ideally you're going to spend a week of, of your vacation time, um, sort of dopamine fasting. And I think that literally, um, allows the brain to reset. Um, and an analogy I make is, you know, um, one of the old practices with like stimulant medications for ADHDs, um, psychiatrists would tell not always, but sometimes, um, kids and their parents to take, um, drugs like Adderall for five days when they're going to school Monday through Friday, and then take a drug holiday, meaning that they don't take it on the weekends because it prevents tolerance from building up for the stimulant drugs. Um, and kind of helps the brain sort of reset. So it's a similar kind of principle here where, you know, it's not quite as drastic as Adderall, but quite frankly, the dopaminergic effects of some of these social media and other addictive things that we're using may be stimulating us, quite frankly, as much as a prescription stimulant. So if that's the case, then maybe we should also be taking sort of uh, digital holidays instead of drug holidays and allowing our brains to kind of restore and go back to homeostasis. Yeah, I try to take digital Sabbaths mm-hmm. uh, on, on Saturdays, no phone, no, no computer. It's great. I should be doing it more regularly instead of this sort of extreme. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, I find during the week it sort of lets me sort of just go crazy and, you know, uh, always be sort of seeking some sort of stimulus and not just notifications, but like podcasts, right. or, you know, listening to stuff. Because um, I know on Saturday I'll just sort of, that's when I process things. Yeah. That's, and that's why I like it from a behavior change perspective. I'm glad you use the word Sabbath because, yeah, this is an old cultural tradition that obviously comes from the religious world for thousands of years. Um, and that was about work. But, you know, I think it's not to necessarily say that you can't work, um, but it's to say, let me just identify the things that may be problematic or addictive in my life yeah. and focus on withdrawing those things. So this is, again, like the nuance thing I was talking about. I didn't come up with the idea of dopamine tests. There's probably articles that have been written about it years before, but they're very stringent where they're like, no digital devices. You can't touch anything electronic. I'm like, it's not electronic that's the problem. So like an analogy I made was like, if you're reading a Kindle Paperwhite where there's no distractions on it and you're just reading one book for a few hours, I don't consider that addictive or problematic um, for most people, I would say. Right. So if you want to do that on your Saturday, great. Read a book on a digital device. That's very different than clicking through 17 articles down the rabbit hole on Reddit. Right. Which is which is obviously a lot more of an addictive kind of pattern of behavior. So that's the nuance that I think people need to identify. But from a behavior change perspective, doing it daily, weekly, quarterly and annually allows for both micro and macro, you know, implementation of the behavior. Um, and I find that's much easier to, to keep because it allows a little bit of it in the short term and a long term. Because the problem I find that when it's almost like a, a vacation thing where it's like, oh, I, I get to do this once a year and I get to go have fun or I get to relieve myself of something yep. is, well, what do you do in the meantime? You're just sitting there suffering the whole time and your brain doesn't get a break. So you always have to give yourself, I think, something to look forward to at the end of the day or some break even at the end of the day that hopefully extends outward yeah, on a weekly, quarterly, annually basis as well. Yeah. But I, I think there's just something also psychologically powerful to knowing that, you know, you can get through anything in a day if you know you have something to look forward to. And you don't, you don't have to wait to the end of the whole week for that. Yep. And let, let's get to physical activity. Sure. What do you think people misunderstand there? Or what do you try to make sure that, that people do that they might not fully appreciate? Cardio's overrated. <laughs> I am a recovering distance runner. So I can, I can, I can justifiably say that I used to run competitively from 800 meters to 5k distances. Um, and, 
I, I, this is not to bag on cardio. So I, I make the same analogy with physical activity. The best exercise is the one that you can stick to long-term, just like a diet. So look, if you like running, by all means, go run. If you like dancing and that's the way you do your physical activity, by all means, go and do dance. Whatever people are, makes them happy or makes them consistent about sticking to, they should do that. Now, I find generally there's almost like two types of people, if I'm going to oversimplify. There's the people who kind of don't like physical activity and for them, they should just do whatever they enjoy because it's going to be, it's like pulling teeth for them to do. They actually like hate working out. So I'm like, look, if it's just walking, if it's going to a class, if it's dancing, you find, find something that you can do consistently. Second bucket of people, these tend to be people who've done a lot of physical activity in their life, former athletes like me, um, people who are maybe a little bit more masochistic. They, they're, they're fine. You know, I actually always say when I lift weights, I don't enjoy it actually at all. It sucks because I lift hard. But I don't mind because I'm like, it's not meant to be fun, right? I, 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 there's a great Muhammad Ali quote where he said, like, I hated every single minute of training, but I enjoyed being a champion for the rest of my life. That's my attitude, but I know that's not everyone else's attitude. So for those people, they can be a little bit more optimal in terms of what they do. I think if you're, if you're a little bit more in the optimization camp, I think actually people should do a lot more strength training. And that includes women, by the way, you know, um, there's very good research that shows that in terms of preventing osteoporosis, improving your, bone density um, and increasing your muscle mass like strength training is critical now, there's lots of ways you can do that you can do pilates you can do um, more like a power yoga it doesn't always have to be lifting heavy weights right. in a super machismo way um, but you shouldn't be afraid of it too there's no reason that has to be a gender stereotyped activity what do you recommend for folks who are looking to live you know until as long as they can live healthily but don't really care about performance or looks um, I, I, you, you, you tell me what unicorn doesn't care about performance or looks. People are way more, um, vain than, than people give themselves credit for. That's not a bad thing, right? It's, we're talking about evolutionary psych. Of course you care about your looks. It increases your, your yeah, sexual so market value, right? And maybe you want to maintain that relationship, right? So look, there's nothing wrong with that. I, in fact, I had, um, I, I've had founders come to me to lose weight for, because they think it would improve their chances of fundraising. And I'm like, okay, that's very extrinsically motivated. But you know what? If that's the thing that motivates you yeah. to do this now, I'm all for it, right? I, I meet my clients where they're at. Yeah. So so I'm a big fan of uh, any sort of sort of resistance or muscle strengthening activity that includes um, lifting weights or it could be without it. But the, Does it include Barry's Um Yeah, I can if that's the thing that motivates you. But I, I think about it in three tiers. Look, so the three tiers are this, is you should... Um, engage in some sort of low intensity activity, meaning walking, right? And, and it's not, a lot of people actually have an illusion that if they're going to the gym, they can sit on their butt all day. It's sufficient. It's not like your, your metabolism actually slows down from sitting. So I think people should shoot, shoot for about 7,500 steps a day. That's what the research literature generally shows. And my, my big thing is you don't have to have a standing desk. Actually, like not a particularly big fan of it. I think it's fine. Like if you want to stand or sit and alternate throughout the day, that's great. Um, but the evidence seems to support as long as you're just getting up and taking walking breaks throughout the day, then that's incredibly effective. So I, I encourage people to like every 50 minutes that they work, take a 10 minute break or every 70 minutes they work, take a 20 minute break that allows for sort of an hour, an hour and a half window. Um, that allows you to hit your 7,500 steps. So that's low intensity. Moderate intensity is resistance training. That's the muscle strengthening activities that I mentioned. I generally think people should be lifting every other day to every day. 
um, depending on your level of motivation. But I think most people can do three days a week of going to the gym, whether it's Barry's boot camp, as you said, whether it's CrossFit, whether it's just lifting on your own. You seem kind of dubious on Barry. You think it's just okay? Well, basically the cardio part or because. Um, well, it's kind of, I generally don't like mixing the cardio and the strength training. Um, if you're doing difficult enough strength training, believe me, your heart rate and you're sweating enough. You know what I mean? So yeah, I had a a funny Twitter thread about like, you know, hot yoga tricking people into thinking that they're getting better at workout than they actually are. Nothing against hot yoga, but it's not a substitute for hard work. Um, and I think sometimes, no, I don't think so. I think it can be incredibly helpful for for mobility. It's not, it's not that any particular thing is good or bad, but it's the right. intention behind it. So for instance, if you're going to a hot yoga class, not working out as hard because you're letting the heat sweat for you, right. that's the dubious part. If you're obviously going there and getting a good workout, awesome. That's and great. Swimming relative to his training, training. Also just something different. Swimming. So, so the last tier, so that I talked about moderate intensity activity. I do think some, um, everyone should do if they can, there's no like physical limitations, um, medical limitations, um, some sort of high intensity activity once a week. Yep. So that's like, I'm a big fan of high intensity interval training. In fact, I started a high intensity inter- interval training group when I was in grad school at UCLA. So that could be running, biking, swimming, could be berries. Um, the only thing is it, it can overload your central nervous system to, if you're doing it re- a really high intensity. So probably you shouldn't do it like more than, um, you know, once or twice a week, if you're already doing three to five days of strength training and you're walking every day. So that's how I think about it is like, you should actually have a variety of activities at the low, medium and high intensity. And so there is a value in cardio. So for instance, my cardio that I do once a week is I go play basketball. Yep. It's essentially naturally intervals. If you're sprinting back and forth and I actually play defense, so I am <laughs> getting cardio. Can you do that until like age 50 or just like as, you'll play as long as you can? Um, as long as I don't get injured. Yeah. That's, that's the main thing, you know? So, um, that's actually the great thing about, um, lifting by the way, is if if you're lifting with proper form, you can do it, um, all throughout your life. Basketball though, man, people throw elbows and, and all kinds of things. I mean, I hurt my knee actually playing last Saturday, so I'm just like, fingers crossed. Hopefully it's not too bad. (laughs) In a similar way, people have sort of drastically different views on emotions. People have different views on self. There's sort of this idea that some people believe that you have one true self and you should just listen deeply to it and, and figure out what it says about whether you should stay at your job or be with your partner and then it, you know, out will emerge the, the true answer other people say we actually don't have selves at all we are you know we are one with the earth you know, <laughs> we are connected to everything yeah. and there's no sort of uh, you know, dis- discreteness um, and then there's somewhere in the middle where, where do you stand what does literature say how should we think about the self um, I'm not sure we fully understand it but I'll, I'll tell you what i believe i actually think we have multiple selves and i think if you think about it that way it helps explain some things right like why is it that all of us are kicking ourselves for not going to the gym right so there's a part there's i guess you can say there's a self that's like man i should be going whatever three to five days a week the devil on my shoulder angel exactly so i guess you can consider those multiple selves right There's, there's there's different drives and you can you know there's different there's been various um explanations in, in sort of psycho psychological tradition for why that is right. The id ego and super ego, for instance, in classical analytical theory. Um, but I, I think it is useful to think about that, that maybe there isn't just like a one core identity. And the reason I think it's, um, I don't know if it's right, but I'll tell you why I think it's useful. Right. And that's one, by the way, one of my, my big mottos in life is, um, it's, I always tell my clients, it's more important to be effective than it is to be Right. Because when people are very obsessed with being right, 
it's often an ego-driven thing because it's not just about finding truth. I'm, I am a big fan of finding truth, but obviously, like a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, is subjective. Like I'm telling you my opinions on things that are as evidence-informed as they can be. But you know, if we have this podcast again in ten years, I'm sure. I hope I've evolved some of these things. I hope I'm wrong. That's the nice thing about science. Science allows you to be wrong and improve and update your theories over time. So that's why I'm not wedded to any particular thing. I'm, I'm wedded to continual improvement over time. But when it comes to the identity, the challenge that I find, especially when I work with clients, I'm not actually worried about the folks that have necessarily the, the greatest quantity of depression or anxiety. Um, it's the people who are very psychologically inflexible. Yeah. And who are those folks? Those are often folks that are very, um, and they have their identity wedded to a particular thing, right? Where they're like, I am a quote unquote founder or CEO or a successful entrepreneur or whatever that is. And if something challenges that, right? Their business is not going well. They get kicked out of their company. Uh, it fails. Then they are devastated, yeah. right? And so this is the weird kind of, uh, dialectic, which is like identity and ego can drive people to great success. So I never want to necessarily like strip someone. I don't believe in this whole like notion of being egoless. I don't think it's possible, quite frankly, unless you've achieved some sort of apparently Buddhist nirvana that I haven't achieved. But for most people, I don't think that's actually the the goal state, right? Because identity and ego can be useful, right? It means you, you can, it can drive you to care deeply about something, right? When you, when you do take it a little bit personally. But the problem is if you take it too personally and you can't disengage from that, then you're going to be devastated for, I've heard of founders who are like devastated for years after a failure and they never quite get over it, right? Because they haven't, it's too tied into them, them being a failure as a human being, as a person, right? That's when it gets dangerous. So my sort of belief is the the delicate balancing act is to be able to engage with ego and identity when it's useful, right? So for instance, when you're walking into a pitch meeting, you need to be centered. You need to be confident. You need to really believe in your mission. You need to express that in an authentic way. And so you, you kind of have to believe your story, right? That you are the person that is going to make this successful, that this company matters and that um, you're on a mission to achieve it, right? So in that moment, in a, hopefully a congruent and authentic way, you are, you are very fused with that identity, right? With the, the founder archetype or, or ethos. Now, there may be a useful moment that when things aren't going well, or maybe let's say you need to just be a different person. Maybe you need to put on a different self, which is like the, you know, more of like the, the lover archetype of being a calmer, uh, more intimate, more, uh, you know, compassionate, sensual human being, right? And then so you're putting on a little bit of a different, it's not a mask, but it's a different part. You're engaging a different part of yourself, right? And you can kind of turn off that part of it and be like, okay, maybe things aren't going so well at work. And that identity has kind of gotten a little bit of a slap upside the head. But, but that's not me. That's not all of me because there are multiple me's, quote, quote unquote, um, and when I'm sitting there with my, my partner, I can be a different part of myself and I can still be a hundred percent with that person. Right. Even though this identity is taking a little bit of a whacking. Right. Right. So that's why I think it's useful to be able to engage and disengage with identities, whether that's the primary identity, but also even with secondary ones that are different parts of ourselves. Right. There's a great book. It's not very evidence-based, but I still think it's very useful, which is called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. It's written by a, um, a Jungian analyst named Robert Moore. Uh, and, and they're sort of like different archetypes of the mature masculine 
the the king being sort of the leadership um, role that we all have. And you can there's also the queen, of course, if you're talking about the female version of it. Um, there's the lover, which is the romantic relationships, the the part of us that needs sort of intimacy, intimacy and connection. There's the warrior, which is the person that stands up for ideals and virtues and serves. Um, and also as part of the physicality and the physical exercise that we talked about. And there's the magician, right? That's the, the career, the work, the creativity, the generative sort of component of ourselves, right? And um, those are sort of classical psychological or even mythological archetypes that you can think about but it makes sense if you if you you don't even want to believe in that tradition you can say look this is my sort of uh um leadership hat professional hat relationship hat and like physical slash health hat yeah Yeah. and i think everyone can be like those are common four values that almost everyone has so if you think about those as four you can either call them four different selves four different values or fourth parts of your life that are important to you, whatever you want to call it doesn't matter to me. Um, it's useful to think about how can I optimize all of these things and how can I, I can, how can I be, you know, great in, in each of these aspects of my life in a way that's resilient so that even if one's not going well, I can still be good at the other three, right? right? And make up for it where I'm not a, a catastrophic loss or disaster, even yeah. if one of them is not going well. Talk about why you value respect and admiration over passion and love for relationships. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's um, an importance of having sort of passion and um, emotion in a relationship. It's fundamental, right? It's, but to me, it's almost, um, though, a symptom of things that are going well, right? When you have deep connection and intimacy, you you will feel positive, right? You will feel joy and love and, and, and all the concomitant emotions that come from it. But, you know, I think it's a, it's a challenge that, that that's what obviously attracts people. It's like the initial chemistry right. or spark. But, you know, if you talk to a lot of people who've had s- successful, sustainable, long-term relationships, like being married for decades, which is hard, right? Like if, if half of marriages are so and, and divorce, um, you know, the, a, a common characteristic or refrain that you hear is the tremendous amount of respect and admiration that people have for one another and it's not to say they don't love each other they don't have those googly feelings at times either but i think those things kind of sometimes fade or subside but i think when you have deep profound admiration and respect for other people it helps you work through the inevitable difficulties in life right and the challenge is that like you know, feelings come and go. They're, they're so um, variable, right? And so if you're constantly relying on your emotional state to treat someone well, right? I, I'm in love with you, so of course I'm going to treat you like a king or a queen. But what happens when you're not feeling that person or you're upset about them? Are you going to treat them like dirt? Obviously, that's not a great way of going about it, right? So it's, it's dangerous to sort of use emotions as to drive your behavior sometime. Well, if you have a fundamental, like even just let's call it a sense of honor, about this person, right? I'm in a relationship and I'm going to honor this this person because I've chosen freely to be with this person. And yeah, maybe they're doing some stuff to piss me off and I'm going to obviously have a, you know, a reasonable discussion with them about it, but I'm going to do my best in this uh to make this relationship work or make this or solve this issue as a reasonable person, right? Whether or not I feel like it, whether or not I feel good. Um so it it kind of comes back to the same thing we were talking about in act, right? It, it comes down to a fundamental value, right? Yeah. If you share values, you're aligned with your values with your partner and part of your value is to be a certain way with your partner, right? It's to be a compassionate, loving, supportive partner, then you're going to try to uphold that ideal in the relationship 
whether or not you feel good. Yeah. The, uh, what, why energy over uh, time management? Yeah. Um, a colleague of mine, uh, Ernest Rossi, you know, and, and by the way, you know, I, I just want to tip my hat to all the great clinicians and scientists and thinkers that came before me. Cause a lot of the stuff that I, you know, espouse are, are honestly like reformulations of way smarter people that came before me. And I, I am very fortunate to have learned a lot from them. So a lot of this comes from his work. Now he wrote a great book called the 20 minute break that unfortunately never got as much love because he's a academic and not a, you know, pop writer. Um, but, um, Jim Lore and Tony Schwartz, um, essentially popularized a lot of that in their work with, um, athletes and executives in a great book called The Power of Full Engagement. And so the thesis of the book and my thesis that I share with them is that the secret to productivity is not time management, but it's energy management, right? And so when I'm working with clients, I'm not sitting there like, uh, giving them productivity hacks of like, get things done. Um, you know, most founders and CEOs are pretty competent when it comes yeah. to, productivity and time management they're not very competent when it comes to energy management most of the time like they're exhausted most of the time and there's this delusion that you can how can you truly be productive for 12 16 hours a day hammering stuff home certainly you can pound through 500 emails sure if you want to consider that productivity but if you're thinking about the deep thinking that's needed to strategically think about the direction of your company for the next three to five years if it's how do I handle a very complex interpersonal conflict in my company that there's no easy answer for? These require deep thought and energy to be able to address. And so, you know, we know from working with professional athletes that not only do they work out really hard, they, they're obsessed with recovery. Right? They not only train, um, they only get a lot of sleep, but they, you know, they take naps, they do restoration. There's a lot of recovery work that they do. And I think it's the same for founders, right? And so part of that is, for instance, the stuff that I talked about in terms of like, you know, getting up from your desk, for instance, every 20 minutes and, um, standing up, looking at something for 20 feet away for 20 seconds. And these are just like little micro breaks, rests that you can take for recovery. In addition to the 10 or 20 minutes ones that you do every 50 to 70 minutes, because these are restoration activities that restore your energy. So if you're very low energy on those breaks, you may want to in fact take a nap for 10, 20 minutes because you're sleep deprived and that's what your body needs. If it's more like you're just kind of, um, you've gotten enough sleep, but you're just kind of antsy from sitting all day and your metabolism slow down, your energy is going to funk, then you should actually go for a walk for those 10 to 20 minutes. And there's, you know, a lot of, uh, good experience and evidence that that helps people restore their energy levels and then come back more refreshed. Right. So it doesn't have to be, like I said, that one to two week vacation that you take annually, uh, annually. You can take those kind of micro breaks throughout the day, week, month, quarter, et cetera, that allows you to essentially do the work equivalent of high intensity interval training, yep. right? Where you're doing these little sprints when you're working with absolute full engagement, full mindfulness, as we talked about, um, with your full, you know, mind share and energy. And then when you're resting, that you're, you're fully recovering, you're fully restoring, you're eating, you're resting, you're walking, you're napping, you're doing whatever to physiologically restore so that you can bounce back and be productive, which is the opposite of how most people function, where they just kind of redline themselves till they're exhausted, uh, maybe sort of inadvertently take some breaks or, or try to force the gas pedal by drinking more caffeine or coffee to get through the afternoon. And by the end of the day, they come, they're just like done and exhausted and they're not fully restored when they start the next day. And of course they start taking more stimulants, more caffeine in the morning to, you know, perpetuate that sort of chronic cycle of exhaustion and sleep deprivation. So 
Um, I think there's a lot that can be done and a lot that I do when I work with folks to help them be um, mindful of the way that their behavior impacts their energy and then like kind of shift their schedule around um, just as like Paul Graham talked about sort of like a, you know, a builder versus maker schedule. I think it's the same thing. It's like, if you're, if you want to be a high performance founder or investor or anyone who has to deal with a, a challenging professional or personal schedule, you need to implement rest and recovery um, in a, in a smart and thoughtful way that fits your particular schedule and demands. Right. Cause it's going to vary for a lot of people. If you're Michael Phelps swimming six hours a day. Yeah. You may sleep 10 hours because that's way more exhausting. You're burning more calories. Other folks, it may be a little bit lighter. So you got to kind of just find what works for you. And for people who struggle with uh, guilt or shame, you have your, you know, for yourself or others for peace, do you, is sort of your, do you do more CBT, like, uh, you know, or try to dig deep as to why they feel that free of guilt and then sort of convince yourself that you shouldn't be feeling this uh, guilt or shame rather? I, I try not to convince people of anything. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I find that if I'm teaching too much or convincing too much. Guilt and shame often stem from improper. I don't know if you've looked or, or appreciate Byron Katie at all, but she, yeah. she or like, is that legit? Or you know, in terms of rewiring the brain in terms like, or rewrite those assumptions that lead you to think that you should be guilty or shame, shameful. Yeah. I mean, if you, 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 I guess you can call that a form of cognitive restructuring. So yeah, if, if people are amenable to changing their thinking, which some people are, some people are more like cognitively flexible, if you want to put it that, using sort of restructuring techniques um, can be incredibly like a quick and easy kind of thing. A lot of times, unfortunately, people's guilt and shame comes from deeper yeah. sort of core beliefs, right? If you fundamentally think that you're an inadequate person, that you're not lovable, that you're worthless, these are kind of heavy, heavy thoughts. And they may have been with you for a very long time. Yeah. I'm not going to convince you of that right. in any, any short term time. So I generally think if, if you're finding that it's like a longstanding issue, yeah, you should go to therapy and there's no like quick and easy fix about it, but it may take some time and working with someone and, and almost having like a corrective emotional experience, yeah. right? From a, from a more psychodynamic lens, regardless of the type of orientation that you're practicing, you know, part of the benefit of therapy, and that's why I'm like, I'm a big fan of AI, but I don't think it's going to replace therapists anytime soon is that the relationship itself is healing, right? If you feel like you're a worthless human being and because unfortunately you were raised in a way where that was reinforced and you didn't get unconditional love or positive regard, to get that, even if it's in a professional context, right, from a person who will, you know, listen to you without judgment and consider you whole um, can be incredibly therapeutic and transformative, right? And so that's why it's like, there's not a little quick 30, 30 second tip that I can give you about absolving 20 years of guilt and shame. But I, I do think being in a trusted, empathic relationship with another human being that doesn't judge you and makes you feel worthwhile can help change that for a lot of people. I think it's a good note to, to end on. My guest today has been Dr. Cameron Seba. Uh, if you want to go deeper on Cameron's work, follow him at Dr. Seba uh, on uh, Twitter's. Uh, if you're working on something interesting and uh, might want to as an advisor, investor, uh, you've been at Mag- Magi Ventures? Magi Ventures, Magi yep. Ventures. Anywhere else you would point people to or any last words for the audience? Yeah, follow me on social media, um, Dr. S-E-P-A-H, on Twitter. I write long-form articles on Medium and LinkedIn, um, some of the ones that I mentioned during this podcast. Um, and then, yeah, I, I spend, um, you know, we talked a lot about psychology. Um, so I, I have my private practice, um, and teach on the side, but I spend, spend most of my time as a full-time investor. 
Um, so I, I do that with my angel fund and then I, um, collaborate as an advisor as we talked about with, uh, with bling and eight VC. And so, you know, if you're interested in, uh, working together on that front, uh, just reach out and I can connect you, um, whether with my fund or other funds, um, to work with. It's been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much. My pleasure. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.